In today's episode, I am having an unscripted conversation with myself about whether Christians should date unbelievers. Join me. Questions, questions, questions. Should I be dating someone who's not saved? Should I be dating someone who doesn't go to my church? Should I be dating a Catholic if I'm Pentecostal? Should I be dating someone who does not intend to join my church after we marry? Should I be dating someone that I don't even intend to marry? Should I be dating someone who does not intend to ever be saved or uh, to consider spirituality at all? There are so many questions that I think if you're like me, especially among single friends, we're having these conversations regularly. So I thought it was appropriate to have this conversation on the podcast and just really delve into what it benefits us when we do have relationships that there is a difference in participation in church or definitions around spirituality. There's a lot to consider. So where do we start? So first we got to start with definitions and I'm not going to read from the West traditionary because this is my podcast. And so I get to define the definitions in, in in this virtual environment. So a truth for me, is that I do not believe that dating as we experience it is a spiritual construct. I believe that dating is a social construct. Uh, It is purely defined by the world. Nobody dated in the Bible. There is no outline for dating. There is no affirmation of dating. There is no Uh, condemning of dating. So dating, to an extent, is purely social. Well, perhaps some would say there are some examples of dating. Uh, To an extent, uh, David knew Saul's daughter well enough to want to marry her, although the Bible presents this idea that he was enamored by her beauty and that she had respect for him. So they were in the same circle. That's not necessarily dating. Uh, Someone might say, well, when Esther became queen, she was reviewed and she went through a process of consideration. 
Well, there's some elements of the Bible that are very much one-sided when it comes to the honor and respect for uh, women as we experience it in the common day. Uh, some might say, well, uh, you know, dating doesn't have to be 15 years. Therefore, if it's 15 minutes, you know, that should matter. Some might say, well, maybe David dated Bathsheba if he looked upon her and uh, was enamored by her beauty, whatever. At the end of the day, there is no definition, there's no biblical definition of dating. Therefore, when we're talking about dating, we're solely borrowing from what we experience to be a social construction for dating. Okay, so when somebody says biblical dating or dating the Bible way or godly dating or that's to an extent a misnomer because if something is not in the Bible and we're connecting it to our spirituality, what we're essentially saying is bringing our spiritual values, our pursuit of God's will, our understanding of how God created us and his intention for our life, we're bringing that into the context of a relationship. So what's guiding our relationships, our dating, or any other social construction that we are part of are these primary ideas that are presented by the Bible. So we can then say uh, there is a overlap because God did give us outlines, recommendations, uh, ways to think about interpersonal relationships in the Bible, right? A lot of the Pauline letters, I'm just giving out this high level before I get into the real talk. A lot of the Pauline letters dealt with how do I interact with my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife, my friend, my you know, foe? How do I interact with other people on an interpersonal level um, in a way that honors God? So we know that God has a way for us to experience one another. Because we don't have any direct uh, sort of cultural direction from the Bible about how today we often allow the experience, and I'm just saying this because I believe it, we allow the experience of people who are married, um, we allow those married people to then interpret scripture. And I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, I've been, uh, I've been married for 60 years and you know, we did it the right way. Said, well, okay. Um, we get this idea of being unequally yoked or being in a relationship where there is a difference of values or opinions from Second Corinthians, the sixth chapter, and the 14th verse, which says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, and what agreement 
verse 16 says, have the temple of God with idols, for ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So, context on the Corinthian church, a multifaceted, growing Christian community where people, based on their uh, familial backgrounds, are connected to idol worship. Uh, some of them are devout Jews connected to old processes that Christ, through his death on the cross, eliminated. Um, but yet they're committed and have made idols out of things that once were um, core religious uh, images, values, ways of life. Uh, and Paul, in his admonishment as an apostle uh, to the Corinthian church, invites them to think about cleanliness and uncleanliness and equity and relationship from the context for which they could understand. So he uses a farming terminology when he talks about being unequally yoked. A yoke um, in those days uh, is or was uh, a contraption that is put over the head of two cows or two, let's say two animals um, for the purposes of uh, allowing them or positioning them to work in unity with one another to do various things like till the fields or protect the land. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a farming term. The reason why you don't want two animals who are unequally yoked to work together, or to be yoked um, together is that their being unequally yoked impacts their productivity. So you don't get a baby cow and an adult cow and put the same yoke on them because one of them is gonna strangle, right? Their productivity, they have to be equally yoked so that they can pull the same amount of weight, so that they can accomplish the same uh, amount of work so that they can achieve their collective goal or the goal of whomever is empowering those two animals to do what they are empowering them to do. So this idea of being unequally yoked was understandable to them because of the context for which they understand, they understood farming. In today's world, we have made the idea of being unequally yoked, we have based on social constructions, based on biases, based on where we're from, based on our reformation, we have decided what that means in our context. So in my livelihood, uh, in, my, in the span of life that I have had, I've heard that scripture me, me, used to communicate to me as a young man, uh, be careful who you befriend. I've heard it used to encourage me to be careful uh, who I 
a date I've heard it used um, to communicate uh, concern around uh, churches that I attend outside of my Reformation. So I've heard it used in a lot of different ways in a lot of different contexts. So Paul, in writing this, is using as many uh, what I what I call a sort of parable facing ideas, and we know that the the root word of the the word parable is comparison. So Paul is positioning the reader uh, to compare an idea that they are fully familiar with with an idea that might be foreign to them for the purpose of teaching them to understand it. So Paul is saying, "I'm going to teach you." Um, how to appropriately connect yourself in covenants with other people by helping you to understand that through the context of an oxen or farming. So these people get a clear and concise understanding of what Paul is saying because he goes on to say, just in case you are not a farmer and you still need clarification, what can righteousness and unrighteousness do together? What is righteousness? Righteousness is the uh, purity and understanding of what is right informed by your relationship to what is righteous, right? So what is righteous to us is God. And so he determines what is right. And so I view righteousness or what is right through the lens of God who is righteousness. So there is no fellowship between righteousness and unrighteousness. And there is no fellowship between dark and light. It is either dark or it is light. So in case you're not, you're not far, in case you don't have a clear, concise understanding of what is righteous, surely you have an understanding of the difference between light and dark. And then he goes on to draw um, th these sort of visuals between individuals. He starts talking about believers and infidels. He talks about um, the juxtaposition between idols and the temple, this idea of idols um, who dishonor God don't actually interface with God because it's either God or the idol. Uh, and then uh, he closes out um, by saying that we as believers are temples of the living God. And God has said that he will dwell in us and he will walk with us and he will be our God and we'll be his people. So therefore, Paul concludes that we should come out from among them and be separated, saith the Lord, and that we should not touch the unclean thing as determined by the previous scriptures, unrighteousness. Uh, and that God, as a result of our commitment to not being entangled with the unclean thing, he will receive us and he'll care for us. Okay, so what we know for sure is that Paul in this scripture lays out a principle for Christian living. Now, although we've already uh, 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 detailed that there is a difference. There is no biblical definition for dating. Paul is saying, let me give you uh, a, a pastoral understanding, because that's what Paul was a pastor. He gives a pastoral understanding of how we should interpret interpersonal relationships with other people. The thing that sticks out to me is what it means, and I love the idea of a yoke, right, in this context. If I were to um, 
uh, sort of think about a common day uh, example. Um, when you're building a football team, if you've got a good quarterback, you don't attach a quarterback who escapes the pocket with uh, linemen who don't know how to protect him. Uh, okay, maybe you don't watch football. Um, you don't um, assign um, a, a person with a terminal degree with a person who doesn't have a degree at all if their work is equitable and they have the same responsibility. You match experience with experience. You match class and rank with class and rank. And you do that for the sake of productivity, right? Because if there is a gap in understanding, a gap in learning, a gap in thinking, um, when you're forming, say, a team, then there is a lot of retroactive work that has to be done in order to get the person that's not up to speed up to speed. So when I decide to date someone who is not a Christian, what decision am I making? First of all, we've got to take a little step back. In the context of this conversation, when we start talking about what it means to be a Christian, someone who believes that Jesus died on the cross, rose again, uh, and did so for our sins, and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and is coming back again, and left for us the gift of the Holy Spirit to be our paraclete, to carry us through this life so that we will be a bride ready to be received by Christ, thereby uh, patterning our behavior, our relationships, the way we talk, the way we walk, the way we speak, what we do with our time um, in a way that honors and reflects that that's what a Christian is, right? So a Christian is not just somebody who believes there's a higher power. A Christian is not just somebody who believes that Christ was real. A Christian is someone who has decided as a result um, of their conversion to Christianity that they are, so we've got to be careful about this because there are a lot of people who name the name of Christ, but do not have anything more than a form of godliness. So the Bible doesn't explicitly say that we can't date outside of our reformation or our ideology. Where the Bible does get involved in our personal life is in our understanding of marriage. Paul, um, in his conversation around marriage, says this in 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 39, verse. He says that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if the husband dies, then the wife is free to marry whomever she wishes, but only in the Lord. So, uh, there are designations. Now, mind you, I think it's important to note, too, that the Bible, um, it, it, you can understand best the Bible through governmental systems that might have been placed in place at the time. Uh, in, in the early days, when you're reading the Pentateuch and other, and other early parts of the Bible, the Old Testament, they live in what is called a... Um, theocracy. A theocracy is where God is in control. God is the judge. God is the president. He's the senate. He's the 
Congress, God is in control. And then he identifies and appoints leaders um, who uh, adjudicate unto righteousness and justice. That's a theocracy. So Samuel was the last judge in a theocracy. The people said, we want a king in those days. And so they moved from a theocracy to a monarchy. Now, God is still in control, but man then had power and control uh, in those particular days. We live in our in, in the United States, if you listen to this from the United States, we are in a democracy, which means that the people decide for the majority um, what happens, when it happens, how it happens. Right, so it's important to understand that when we're reading some scriptures in the Bible, there are no, uh, this is a way of life that is given to us within the context of the political system that stands the tallest. So whether it's a monarchy um, or a theocracy or whatever it might be. So when we know or learn about marriage in the in, in, in the beginning, we learn about it from the perspective of a theocracy where people do not have as many choices as perhaps they have now. So the, the way that we internalize and interpret marriage is a little bit different from then and now. But the Bible explicitly says uh, in, in the scripture that I just read, that even if, if your spouse dies, um, you can remarry, but they have to be in the Lord. The Bible does, while it does not say anything about dating, it tells us explicitly about marriage, right? It tells us how we should inter, interface um, specifically when we are considering marriage. But it also tells us that a, a believer um, who um, maybe a person who gets saved or comes into the knowledge of Christ, accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior, um, while they're already married, they shouldn't go get a divorce because the Bible says in a sense that uh, the, the person who is saved covers or then sanctifies the person that is not in a sense. Now, sanctifying them does not mean that they are saved. It means that they are 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 covered by Christ because Christ is the head. So we have a problem with this idea of being unequally yoked and how that uh, shows us who we can date. Now, my goal in dating, I'm going to take the inverse argument here. I'm going to take the inverse argument here. My goal in dating should be to find someone who is in the greatest, deepest, most clear alignment with who I am as possible. Now, I know they say opposites attract, but we can both be Christians and be opposite. My goal is to identify someone whose values at the base level, line up with who I am, who I want to be, where I'm going, where I want to go. So that in itself eliminates some ways that I might experience dating. Because I know that I'm not going to be dating someone who's spiritual alignment is so far different than mine 
that it's impossible for us to be spiritually equal, right? That might actually inform where I go to meet people, right? So if I'm looking to meet someone that I'm in spiritual alignment with at the time for which I'm planning to date, I'm probably not going to go to the club because it's unlikely that there is somebody that is also at the club who is in spiritual alignment with me. That also does not mean, from my perspective, that the person who I am most in spiritual alignment with goes to the church that I go to. Oh my. They might not go to my church, but they might go to a church and that might equate to spiritual alignment. So when I'm looking at alignment, one of the things that I do know about somebody who names the name of Christ is that even if we do not share the same family or city or name or friends or context or alma mater or 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 or, or, or ideologies one thing that i know will be the glue of our relationship is our equal and intense commitment to pursue god because if i'm pursuing god and you're pursuing God, then there are some interpersonal things that will not override our pursuit. In fact, we'll have more peace, more joy, if we are both in a pursuit of God. If you look at the most cantankerous relationships, the ones that use up the most emotional space, the ones that are, um, plagued with the most baggage. They are relationships where one person is more committed than the other person. And what drives their commitment is different. Their value set is different. So my first goal is to be in a relationship where there is equity in our ability. But that doesn't mean that we're both gonna make the same amount of money. It doesn't mean that we both have got saved the same year. It doesn't even mean that, 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 that we both have the same knowledge of the Bible. But at the baseline, it has to mean that we both have the desire to please God in our personal walk with him. It's got to mean that. There is no way in the world but I'm going to intentionally sign myself up to be in a uh, relationship situation where I am in a pursuit of God, but the person that is in the pursuit of me is not. Be or the person is in the pursuit of God and I'm not because eventually the pursuit's going to win. And eventually, the pursuit has to win. So then a lot of people are saying, okay, the pursuit has to win. And the pursuit is first and foremost. What about the possibility that we both might 
at some point in the relationship acquire the same pursuit. Now, there is a possibility that the unsaved person later gets saved. The reality is a lot of the people who get to define dating in our religious context are people whom, for whom we don't even know how they got together. We don't know what they were when they got together. We just know they've been saved and married for 50 years and we take that as some type of indicator about their ability to successfully give advice about marriage. We really don't know. So there's always the possibility of somebody's pursuit matching over time, right? Naturally, people are praying in relationships that the pursuit at some point matches. And that's not even just spiritually, like, there are people who are in relationships with people who don't have this, don't share the same ambition, don't share the same commitment to parenting. You know, there, there are lots of, you know, prayers that people are praying around becoming shares of the same pursuit. So that happens. I think it's important. I was talking to, to a friend about this. Sometimes we, because you know, we have the scripture that says that faith without works is dead, and we project our need and our desire to be in relationships and to be married. We sometimes either overdo it or underdo it. The overdoers are like, oh, you know, uh, faith without works is dead, so I got to do all this work to make to 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 become loved by someone. And then there is the folk that just believe, I'm just going to walk into love. Like, I'm going to be skipping down the street and somebody going to see me and say, marry me. I think there is room for both ideologies and maybe even a balance between the two, right? Where When we're overzealous in our attempt to be coupled, we tend to make excuses. We tend to make, we tend to create a lot of opportunities to settle, right? And that's the thing that being so interested in being coupled and yoked that you are okay with being unequally yoked sometimes has more to do with how we view ourselves than it has to do with the pool. If I make an assessment of the pool of who would be worthy to be married to me as their husband, and I look around to see, you know, based on what church I go to, what city I live in, what you know, what car I drive, what jurisdiction I'm a part of. If that is the measuring stick for which I determine my ability to be coupled and to be married, that in itself represents a lack of faith, right? Because what I'm saying is the pickings are so slim 
that I either gotta settle or I gotta make something happen for myself. Those are very faithless approaches. They center around our capacity to believe that we can do something for ourselves. And now don't get me wrong, there are people who get on dating apps and got married, <laughs> right? Like there are people that did nothing and got married, right? They just went and looked a certain way or, or not. So the wisest thing that I can do in my pursuit of being coupled, being married, being in a covenant relationship, is not just to pursue God for my spouse, but also to pursue God for the strategy to attain my spouse. One of the most popular misconceptions around dating that church people have built is based on a proverb that says, he that findeth a wife but it's a good thing. That shoots a lot of us in the foot. I'm an introvert. <laughs> like, I'm a loner. This, it, 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 it's going to take the Holy Spirit to come alive in me to be running somebody down. But I also don't want to be ran down, right? Because I don't want to be aggressively pursued by a woman, right? So the best thing for me to do, rather than taking analysis of what the pool looks like, rather than paying hundreds of dollars to be on apps, is to stop and to pray that God will give me the tools and the strategy to be in a position to be equally yoked with someone in a covenant relationship. And then honestly, folks, we got to learn to be quiet. We have a bad habit of making the choices in the life of single people public discourse for married people. I you know, love y'all, respect your experience. When I get married, I will call you all to ask for advice. But what I don't need is your faithless attempt to couple me with someone because you think I'm too old to be unmarried. And so you think I should just settle. No, that's you, <laughs> right? And if I'm dating someone whose pursuit or yoke is not equal with mine, the only way that I'm going to be released from that interaction is if God speaks to my heart and says, no, that's not what I have for you. And believe me, as a person who has so little interest in all of this, 
I want my steps to be ordered by the Lord. Because I'd rather be single for 10 years than to be unhappily married for 10 minutes because I went beyond what God wanted for me to create something for myself. Should Christians date unbelievers? I can't really say because I don't know what an unbeliever is in the, your context. In my context, at my age, at my level of spirituality, my knowledge of my calling, is not enough to be careful. I'm called to be led by God. I'm called for his word to be a lamp unto my feet. So it would not be advantageous for me to be coming up with my own strategy. It would not be advantageous for me to be giving God more work by pursuing people that won't even pursue him. And that's it. Did I answer the question? I don't even know because I just got to talking about it. Because I've been having this conversation with so many different people and like just kind of coveting my own reflection because you don't want to argue with people. And most folks have made up their minds, right? They have decided what they're going to do and they don't need you telling them nothing. But my belief is that we should let our conviction, our pursuit of God drive us towards covenant relationships. And then when we get advice, we should take it if it's spiritual and it leads to a deeper pursuit of God. Season.